Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Schmelz from the the Portland Police Association, that's the Portland Police Union, is back today on Rational in Portland. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back. So talk to us. I, I want to start at the beginning with this Police Accountability Commission. Most people don't understand what what it was, what it is, what's in the news about it, why are we having all these hearings. I know most Portlanders voted for the Police Accountability Commission and assumed that it would increase accountability for policing, something they were very concerned about in 2020. My understanding is Joanne Hardesty, our former city councilor, championed this ballot measure. Um, What can you tell us about what the ballot measure says? Because I think a lot of people didn't even know what they were voting for. Sure. I mean, you know, at the origin, I mean, in my opinion, when when voters look at uh, ballot measures at kind of initiative type processes they're they're kind of answering a question in this case they were answering the question do you believe in police accountability and do you want uh, civilian or uh, oversight in Portland and I think the answer to that is yes and uh, frankly we've had a lot of that for a long time um, the challenge with the ballot is it didn't actually and the auditor pointed out didn't spell out what that process would mean um, in actuality and so you know, the, there was a, a handful of frameworks within the ballot um, about budget, about makeup of the board, and about the uh, imposition of discipline in particular. Um, but the rest of it was kind of left um, to be processed afterwards. And so the challenge became, um, you know, that that process moved forward. Um, and what was kind of created out of that initial conversation is far more uh, reaching. But some stuff happened in the legislature too, right? I mean, things were changed, laws were changed in the legislature to allow for the Police Accountability Commission's recommendations to be reality in terms of bargaining, right? Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, I mean, obviously uh, Portland is a very uh, union-heavy city. I think something in the range of 90 to 95% of city employees are are union represented. Um, But in the state as well, and... You know, uh, discipline itself is an impact reality. It's bargained. Um, You know, we want to make sure our employees uh, have uh, due process, have, uh, you know, the standard of just cause to ensure that they're not improperly disciplined. And uh, when this ballot measure passed, state law uh, did not allow for, um, for this kind of discipline to occur. And so the city went down to Salem and asked for and received a bill to change that. Um, so this bargaining um, and kind of right that union represented employees throughout the city or throughout the state have was uh, removed from law enforcement in Portland. Law enforcement only. Yeah. So what does that mean specifically? Once that's removed, let's say these recommendations are adopted. What does that mean on a practical level? Well, basically what it means is that that we lose some of our ability to bargain the impact of discipline processes. Um, and so we can bargain uh, kind of around the other impacts, but the actual imposition of discipline was what was directly impacted. 
And for people who don't understand union or labor law terms, what does bargaining mean and why is that important? So basically, again, when you have represented employees, you, you have a, a ability to sit down and discuss um, and negotiate with your employer uh, the process through which uh, discipline and other things can happen. And again, unions in general, you know, we hear a lot about, uh, you know, why do you defend this person or that person or whatever else? Our, our role and all unions role is really about process. It's not, I mean, you know, obviously I care about my individual officers because they're, in, you know, they're, I care about them. I want them to be okay. I'm a second generation police officer. I care about the work they do, but um, unions exist to ensure that the agreed upon rights that are given within, uh, within a contract um, that they're followed. And the real challenge is that when that process isn't followed, it creates a ton of trust issues within the employer and employee relationship. And so the PPA, like any other union, is just solely focused on that on that process, on ensuring that due process is given and followed and that the outcome is commensurate with the agreements that exist prior to the conduct taking place. Right, because I think we talked about this when you came on before, and I just want to make sure to address it again because I got some questions about it again, that your position is, look, my job is not to defend bad police, my job, and make sure that they stay on the force, my job is to make sure policy and procedure is followed. If policy and procedure isn't followed, then I address that accordingly, and my people get representation be, to ensure that process is followed, because we've got this contract with the city, right. and if it's not being followed, then... Um, somebody is not upholding their part of the bargain right. and then we have no process whatsoever. Police don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Right. So the contract spells out what they're supposed to be doing, right? And what right. the discipline process is, what they can be disciplined for, things like that. Right. And if you look, I mean, honestly, like, like our contract is no different than the entire justice system, right? You have a system of checks and balances, you have judges and juries, you have due process to ensure that you don't have, um, you know, unlawful uh, kind of capturing of information. Um, but th the real challenge with these political incidents, I mean, you look at, you know, if you, if you had like some incident that involved criminal behavior in the city and, um, you had a judge stand up in front of a news camera and say, whoever did this, when we find out who did it, they're going to go to jail for the rest of their lives. Well, the problem is you don't know any of the facts around the case. You don't know, you know, any of the details and those details may change that perspective. And so what's so important is, again, that process in our society, it, it, it is what separates us from all other societies. We have all these systems of checks and balances and fairness to make sure that we don't have constitutional overreach. And it's the same thing for employees. Um, and the big difference, in my opinion, between law enforcement and, and many other jobs is these police officers don't wake up in the morning and say, I would like to go do this call today. They respond to the things they're sent to. And they're given a set of tools, a set of rules, a set of kind of concepts and training around how they're supposed to respond to those things. They do make individual decisions, um, but the reason there is constitutional protection for law enforcement when they make good decisions or they make decisions commensurate with their training is no one would be able to do the job if you didn't provide those protections. Um, so it it really is important that the rules are followed on both sides. We ask, to ask a lot of our police officers and we ask them to run into very complicated situations and be that kind of wave of calm and a sea of chaos. You can't do that if you then turn around and whack them and say everything you've done is wrong when they're following their training and they're following the rules and laws that have been set up for them. 
So if the Police Accountability Commission recommendations, which have been presented to city council, which have been presented to the DOJ, the Department of Justice, is modified by city council, is my understanding, mm-hmm. right? So city council made some modifications. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your the, the Portland Police Association's position on city council's modifications? And uh, is that enough for you to think, hey, this is something we can go ahead with? So city council, uh, in my opinion, went as far as they could within the charter. Um, Again, in the original charter, there were a handful of things, three that are most important to me, that that exist as far as direction, not a suggestion. The first is budget. Um, You know, the the charter calls for a 5% of the police budget no matter what. The challenge is, is... If they don't need the money, I mean, we get into a lemonade stand theory here. If you, if you need, you know, 50 bucks to run a lemonade stand, but your budget's 100 bucks, the next year, you're probably not going to get 100 bucks. By charter, you mean the charter for these police yeah. accountability yeah. commissioners. Yeah. And, and, and so they get a certain amount. It's not taken out of the police budget, but it's commensurate to the police budget right. by percentage. Right. It's 5% of the police budget. And again, the challenge is, is you have a whole other group of, of uh, departments and divisions within the city who need money. If, if you get to a budget crisis, which again, the CBO is really concerned about, uh, about our budget for the next handful of years, you know, we're talking about, you know, 10, 12, 15 million dollars. If, if they need it, they need it. But if they don't, they don't. And, and it is, it's, in my opinion, kind of irresponsible budgeting to just assure amount of money regardless of what is needed. Well, um, do you have an understanding of what the money is for? Well, I mean, you know, in the initial recommend, recommendation from the PAC, I mean, you were looking at, you know, mental health care, uh, private security. Is that for the commissioners? For the commissioners, um, mental health, mental health mm-hmm. care specifically. Yeah, it was and pri- their own private security mm-hmm. detail. Yeah, um, and then you know uh, just, at all times. Uh, I don't. I don't. I didn't even get that far into the details. Um, but the again, it was. The, it and be, this is what we voted for. This is what Portlanders, not we, but it, the royal we. This yeah. is what Portlanders voted yeah. for. Um, so, and again, this for me is where, just from a budgetary standpoint, if I were the city, and again, this issue doesn't necessarily impact me, other than. You know, my concern is that it will impact police funding. Um, But, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars to be spent on a system that is being run on a much smaller budget now um, is concerning to me. Um, And I want to make sure um, that Portlanders at least understand that. Um, The the second issue um, is the makeup of the board. Um, You know, if you watched all of the PAC meetings, which I... Had the, the <laughs> I went to a, f- yeah. a number of them and I watched a number of them. Um, you know, they were very open throughout um, about their desire to put their finger on the scale. Um, there were many commissioners who talked about uh, just looking for ways to, to completely end, you know, bargaining rights for police officers, disenfranchising the, the PPA in general. Um, and that what they came up with and what was in the charter is that people who are family members of police officers can't serve on the board. But then also on the other end of the scale, which again is there's this obvious tip of the scale, is we encourage people who have had negative interactions with law enforcement to serve. Um, and, you know, one of the questions, and we'll get into the poll, I'm sure, in a little bit, but one of the questions we asked is, I mean, I, I don't care if there's members of police families on that board. I just think that it, it is just obviously unconstitutional to restrict participation in something based on who your family member is. Um, and, 
you know, it's just, it's super important to me, um, that the board is just unbiased. Um, and when we're openly saying we want to have people who have historical animus towards law enforcement, um, that that's a challenge for me. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and again, it seems unconstitutional. So, um, so that's the second and the third, um, and I think the most important issue, and it, it's hard to unpack in a short period of time is the imposition, the imposition of discipline. Um, if you think about, um, how discipline is imposed, um, ultimately you hear a lot of complaints about the arbitration process, um, about, you know, why do police get to arbitrate? Well, arbitration is something that exists for all public employees. It happens all the time. Um, and it's also very, very rare. Um, it's rare. Uh, the PPA, it's like less than a third of a percent of all of our discipline cases. We almost never arbitrate things. Um, and there's been a lot of articles about when we do, um, we're generally successful and people are like, well, why is that? Well, the reason is, is because we only arbitrate cases when things are done unfairly. And it's usually something that's happened for political reasons and you can't fire people for political reasons. It's not legal. Um, but what Portland through this process is exposing themselves to, and I just, I can't imagine why they would want to do it. If, if you have a board that ultimately has members on it who are unfair. Um, and again, I just mentioned that there's concern about having members who have a specific kind of policy proclivity. Right. I think the definition of the people who can, who are allowed to serve are they can, they are, they identify as being over police. Right. So, so you have, so yes, negative interactions. So you have some bias baked into the cake. If they then come to a decision to, to fire a police officer, the city and the chief could look at that and say, actually, they follow policy, they follow procedure, we don't agree with this decision. But because the city has given away its legal ability to make its its decisions on termination cases, you, you could end up in a situation where the city has to defend a position they know is wrong. Um, I believe it will lead to more arbitrations. I believe that arbitrations lead to significant discord in our community around accountability. And I just feel like we're asking for more strife. Um, to me, the more logical way to navigate that would be stand up this board, have a true opinion coming out of a, a civilian-based oversight commission, also have feedback from the chief so you have an internal perspective, and also have feedback um, from the city and the city attorney and, and you know, folks, and then you can look at the totality of that perspective and the city through BHR can make their decision because BHR ultimately is the arbiter of who gets to stay in their employment for the city. Um, What's BHR? Uh, Bureau of Human Resources, just like any other job you have, you know, HR folks. But at the end of the day, it's just so important that the city doesn't sacrifice its, its legal right to make decisions about its own employees. And, you know, it's fascinating. So much you hear from people about police officers as if they're not human or as if they're not just city employees. But a police officer is a city employee no more or no less than a water bureau or a parks or a you know road construction. We're all, we're all the city employees who are represented and have a right to ensure that, our, that there's due process. And now under this system, the only employees in the city who will have you know, a, a, a system of discipline that is run by someone other than the city is law enforcement. And that's concerning to me. Under this, the uh, Police Accountability Commission's recommendations, are they, they give recommendations for discipline and then 
city HR gets to accept or reject that recommendation? How much weight is that recommendation given? Do you know? So right now, right now, I mean, you have IPR is kind of the group and then you also have the CRC, but can, can you explain those acronyms for us? Sure. I'm sorry. So IPR is the uh, office of independent police review. Um, and they, what they do is they, there are some cases that go to internal affairs, usually ones that are involve force or other things, but IPR, um, they do investigations on some civilian complaints and then they issue a recommendation. It goes forward into a police review board. The police review review board makes a decision. It goes to the chief. The chief makes a decision. And then the chief's decision goes to the mayor, who is the police commissioner, and he makes the ultimate decision. Um, if there are disagreements, um, things can be appealed to the CRC, which is, a, the, I think it's Civilian Review Commission or committee, I'm guessing. Um, and so the, there are a number of levels of police accountability already in place in the city of Portland. There's a ton. Um, I'm yeah. sorry, I interrupted you. Then it goes to the CRC, the Citizen Review Committee. Mm-hmm. And then what happens there? Uh, if they, they can give a finding to council and council votes if, if it gets that far. I, I'm, I'm only aware of a handful of cases going there. Um, but um, there's just a lot of checks and balances. And again, it takes too long. It's very confusing. The one thing that this thing gets right, we need to speed up our process. If you file a complaint about a police officer, you, you should get a response within you know a handful of months. Not I mean, right now it's six months to a year, sometimes longer. Yeah, that's too long. Um, and I mean, in, even in discipline cases, if you're disciplining someone a year and a half after something happens... It's just not relevant at that point. So we need to speed our process And isn't up. it also kind of a waste of taxpayer money? Because at that point, that officer's like on being probably, may or may not being being paid and they're on ice, if you will. That's usually what lawyers call it, put them on ice and I guess decide if you're going to pay him while he's there or not. And in the meantime, this process is slowly moving along yeah. while we've got this person who's out of commission. Yeah, we have, I mean, we have officers who have been off for years um, still today um, on investigations. And it's just, it, it is... Uh, it's just silly. Yeah, it doesn't sound efficient. And so what I'm hearing from you is you're still not comfortable with the the amendments that city council came up with. And I, I, I think that's, I, I'm not either. That's part of why I went to city council and testified and, and begged them to send the, this police accountability commission ballot measure back to the voters because I think much like 110, people didn't understand what they were voting for. And I think you have some idea about data on that because uh, my understanding is you had a poll commissioned. Yeah. You know, we, I mean, we had heard, um, I've I've obviously with very significant interest watched the public discourse about this thing, but the more and more people I talk to, we keep being told, well, 82% of the population voted on this. Well, no, they didn't. They voted on a, a permission slip to do a process. They didn't vote on this system. And the more and more I talk to people, they're like, actually, that's not really what I meant. And again, I've been very involved in the Measure 110 conversation, and they felt very similar. I had seen polling on Measure 110. I'm like, okay, I, I think there's more here. I think that we need to hear from Portlanders. And again, the thing that's so challenging is people often point at me and say, well, you're just the PPA president. You're just kind of advocating for what you want. My members who I represent all want what Portland wants, which is a, a fully robust system of accountability and a fully robust policing system that allows for public safety in our city. And so we felt that it was important to find a group that is understood and, and respected by Portlanders and ask the questions. Um, and DHM is, is I mean, I asked around or asked a lot. DHM is kind of the polling firm in Portland. That's it's my understanding too. Universally understood as a, as a legitimate methodology. Um, and we wanted to make sure 
Um, that again, we, we didn't, we don't ask the questions. We don't set the methodology. DHM does that. Um, you know, we, we did participate and, you know, we told them what we, what questions we wanted asked. We told them, um, you know, we wanted to make sure the questions were asked in a way that were very, um, clean, um, and not pushed, you know, it's always difficult when you're asking questions in a poll, you don't want it to come off as, you know, supposing a response. Um, and so we spent a lot of time ensuring that that was the case. How did you ensure that? Um, well, so again, they, they, they created questions and we looked at them and I, again, I, I, I had a lot of people within my kind of ecosystem looking specifically for that. Does it, does this feel like a push? Does it feel like, like you're kind of supposing, and we were very critical. We changed the questions multiple times to make sure, I mean, you know, just what do you think the most important problem is? Not, don't you think the most important, uh, important problem is, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Because I mean, it just makes sense to me that you would do that because you don't, but what is the point of doing a poll? if everybody just comes back with the answers you want them to say right. anyway. What you want to gauge, do you not, is what is the true voter opinion yeah. about this police accountability commission ballot measure. Yep. And, and you know, and also when, when we talk about, you know, people hear about the community a lot. Portland is a very big city with a lot of different concerns as you go around. I, I policed deep east Portland for a long time. Everyone who lives east of 82nd feels under unheard. They feel underrepresented. It's been that way for a long time. Um, and so we wanted to make sure, again, that the one convenient piece of our new uh, Charter Commission piece is we have four quadrants of the city. And DHM, I didn't ask them to, but they did a really good job of making sure that this poll was about 25% of each, of each place. They wanted to make sure we were hearing from a lot of Portlanders, not the same, you know, 25 to 50 people who we hear from a lot. And so what are the kinds of things that you learned about from this poll and and did it surprise you um you know uh it did not surprise me based on the interactions i'd had but you always kind of wonder right as far as like i speak to the people who reach out to me um i don't i don't have an opportunity to speak to kind of a larger group um the thing that, that although anti-police people must reach out to you do they do do they not i get a lot of emails um <laughs> but uh you know i mean but but generally speaking um you know the voter mood um, the, the perspective of, of people in Portland didn't, didn't surprise me because we've heard a lot about that. People being concerned about public safety, um, people being concerned about just generally the, the state of things. Um, you know, the, the, you know, we're hearing a lot about, you know, or Oregon losing citizens every year, everything else. So that, that part was not surprising to me. Well, what I thought was surprising was, uh, if you could afford it professionally and personally, would you consider leaving Portland to live elsewhere? And 56 what is it? Fifty six percent said yes. Mm-hmm. That's scary. Oh, it, it's a scary. Boy. It's a, I, I mean, that's what blew me away. I, I I I know billions are leaving Multnomah County, and that that's what happened last year anyway. Billions of tax dollars. I I. I feel like there's still a loud narrative about how Portland is fine. Apparently, those people are in the minority. Yeah. Um, and it, it, this poll was really helpful to me because it made issues clear and, and opinions clear that I just didn't know about. And then, and then, like you said, what's the most important problem facing Portland today? That was one of the questions. Number one is homelessness by a lot, mm-hmm. 43%. Uh, number two, crime and public safety, 22%. Number three, drugs, 20%. I mean, the, 60% of Portlanders think Portland is on the wrong track. 
Yeah. You know, and the thing that's interesting too, is you, I mean, so, you know, the motto for, you know, for law enforcement in general is we want to navigate crime and the fear of crime, the fear of crime, emotional safety is one of the most difficult kind of things to tether. Um, because, you know, it's like kind of the old adage. If you, if you're living in a street and there's a burglar in the street, you may not be more statistically likely to be the victim of a burglary, but you are far more likely to be attuned to the fact that it could happen. And that creates a lot of decisions for people about where they leave their cars, where they let their kids do everything else to have a thriving city. You need your people to, to live in, in, you know, kind of this feeling of safety. Um, and you start getting into the how, you know, how concerned are you that your family is going to become a risk of a, uh, or is, is at risk of becoming a victim of a crime? The net concerned was 74%. 74% of Portlanders sitting there thinking, you know, I, I'm going to make decisions today in this city about my life, about my kids, about my family because I'm afraid and that is not a healthy place to be. And that's why it's so important, you know, even things as basic as a walking beat, but just having police visible, ha- start, you know, kind of reintroducing law enforcement. Um, that's why I think bike squad has been so great. Yeah. And if anybody's, everybody needs to go on Instagram and follow PPB central bike squad and watch what these guys are doing every day because they are downtown. They are on bikes. They're, they're, all they do is document the kinds of crime that they're fighting every day. These guys work like dogs. Sometimes they have dogs with them, um, so sometimes it's very cute. But anyway, it's it's the kind of thing that is helpful. It's it's a community policing presence, and the fact that they're on bikes, I think, is nice and disarming. And they can also sort of hear what everything that's going on around them. It's helpful to them too. It seems like yeah. Um, something else that I thought was fascinating about this poll: impressions of leaders. Um, unsurprisingly to me, Mayor Ted Wheeler has a 22% net favorable impression. That, that was not surprising to me. The least favorable was Carmen Rubio. That was a little surprising to me because she's just so quiet. So I don't know. I really thought uh, Ted was going to take the hit on that. Um, next, uh, Dan, Dan Ryan with 29%. And then we've got Renee Gonzalez and Mingus Maps tied at 38%. And they seem to be the most um, left center cent- center left people on city council, um, and and consistently so. Like I think some people might say that Ted Wheeler is rather centrist, but he's very inconsistent about his centrism. So I thought that was re- also really interesting, and it tends to it makes sense to me that most Portlanders are not extreme. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's so interesting is is when you have a city that that is has a lot of different ideas, and I mean, we have a city that is dealing with a lot of really difficult yes. issues. Um, I think Portlanders in general are really looking for solutions. They're really looking for steps forward. Um, and what's been so difficult for the last handful of years is every time we try to do something, every time you know we talk about you know you know people got mad about the camping ban or, you know, street use or other things. And people keep asking me, what do you think about those things? And I'm like, I, I, at the end of the day, we don't decide what the tools are, but we do need tools. We need to be able to navigate things. And I think, uh, our, our elected leaders, um, you know, it's important for them to be focused on those kind of pragmatic solutions. I mean, the, the other thing that I think is interesting is this means that the some of the loudest voices in the room that seem to have been driving the bus in Portland for a number of years were not speaking for the majority of Portlanders, probably. And they certainly aren't now. No. And, you know, I think what's really interesting in the last handful of years, voices who have historically not had the opportunity to speak, when they do speak up, 
A small group of people in this city threaten them. They show up at their businesses. They attack them. They dox them. Why do they do that? They don't do it because they're right. They do it because they know they're wrong. And they do it because they don't want the, the general populace to feel comfortable coming out. Um, and they're taking advantage of, of a very complex situation to push their own policy proclivities on a population that doesn't support it. And the only way to do that is through fear. Um, and what's so frustrating for me is, you know, they, the, the, this real virulent voice tends to, to speak as if it is the truth. It's just one perspective. Um, and when we're shouting, when we're listening to people shout down other people's perspectives and scream profanities in city council and do all these things. At every meeting. At every meeting. Um, there, there is a point at which I think most Portlanders see that and think, A, I don't want to deal with that. I don't, I don't want to go all the way down there and fight traffic That's to true. have people scream at me. And B... I'm going to start navigating just simply with my votes. And that's where you see people and they say they're surprised by polls. They're just not paying attention or they're not listening. Um, and it is truly, truly frustrating because I, I mean, I'll, I've said it a million times. I'll go to any meeting. As long as you're not screaming at me, I'll talk to anybody. I want to hear from everybody. Um, but when you have like, you know, like people of color in Portland showing up to city council meetings and then having people dox them and damage and destroy their businesses, including indigenous artifacts, things like that. Yeah, one of them is a friend of mine. Right. It happens routinely. Yeah, we should that that should matter, right? We that that should matter to people. That 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 kind of behavior has to be pushed out of our society. Um, you know, and, and it is it's just you know, I mean, there was one article that I read, um, you know, after our our police memorial was destroyed um, and desecrated. Uh, you know we got some support from the community and people started attacking the, the people in the community who were supporting a memorial for murdered police officers. And it's like, at what point does this, do we just as a city say, you know what, that's just not who we are. Um, we can have accountable policing. We can talk about ensuring that these, these incidents that bother us that are concerning, we can navigate all that, but we grave desecration probably should be a line that we're not going to cross. Yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to the moment that we we as a community stop tolerating this and start as a as a community raising our voices. And maybe it, it just happens with votes and that's fine. And maybe what needs to occur is that these people just realize that they're solidly in the minority. That one of the things that I thought was really important about your poll as far as the police accountability commission ballot measure goes is uh, no, the 14th question, which is, do you think Portland should have more police officers? And 71% of Portlanders said that we should have more police officers. Now, that was heartening to me because I was, the data I've been reading, and I talked to Charles Lehman from the Manhattan Institute recently, and he's telling me that we're 49th out of 50th in terms of 50 big cities in the United States for police officers per capita. Yeah, we're, we're pushing around like 1.1, 1 1.2 per thousand. We should be at 2.4. Um, and it's a huge problem. Um, and again, what's so interesting is we, we just mentioned these virulent voices. They talk about how Portlanders don't want more policing. They want, you know, we don't want to see police officers in schools. We don't want to see police officers, you know, in different areas, working with the homeless, working with all these different groups. Um, it's just not consistent with the voices that I hear in Portland. And, and that was why we wanted to do the poll. The polling company starts asking specific questions about the Portland Police Accountability Commission. And they ask, you know, were you aware about this Police Accountability Commission? And most Portlanders said they were aware. Um, and, and then they asked, 
about specifics that are within the ballot measure. Mm -hmm. Like, which do you think is the better approach? The initial proposal? So they're obviously spelling out what's already in the ballot measure. Hold hearings on police complaints to allow complaint filers and accused officers to confront each other in a public setting. Or B, conduct investigations and hearings that protect the constitutional and privacy rights of both the accuser and accused, which it seems to me is just the American justice system. Yep. And the majority of Portlanders agreed. 63% said it should be the latter, not yes. the former. But the former, it, the public setting uh, accusations in a public setting. It's in the, well, it's in the, well, it was not in the ballot measure. That was something that was created by... Um, by the PAC. And by city, the commission. Yep, and city council removed that piece, which I thought was a good idea. Okay, so city council did remove that piece. So mm-hmm. so what's important about this question then is when there's pushback from the police accountability commissioners about why city council is disenfranchising them yep. and maybe disenfranchising democracy because the ballot measure was very... It was very broad, mm-hmm. and it allowed the commissioners to kind of write in whatever they wanted to write in, which yep. they did. I mean, what was it, 100 pages that they It was presented? 96 pages, I think, initially. And, you know, the thing that was interesting, too, is, um, you know, the former commissioner that, that kind of pushed forward this, this policy, um, she appeared in front of the PAC in December, and she openly discussed the fact that if they overreached, that there would be problems because they needed to make sure they stayed within the will of the voters within what was what was suggested. And the specific things she talked about were many of the things that council cut, you know, getting into budget, getting into training, getting into all these different, you know, I heard factors. that. That was Joanne Hardesty. That's um, right. You know, and, and, you know, it's interesting because even hearing... I was surprised. Uh, well, I mean, look, I mean, you know, she, she said, I think very wisely um, in, in that particular presentation that that this system any system of accountability has to be viewed as legitimate both by you know from within and without from the people who are are being held accountable um you know she identified that correctly because that was what what she intended um and that was not kind of where this thing went and so um the warning was there in in december of last year um that if if an overreach occurred or if we got too far afield that city council was going to be forced you know, morally and politically to to navigate around that. And I think that's what you saw city council do. Um, the, the next one is about budget, which is what we talked about. And most Portlanders agree with the idea that police accountability commission funding needs to be based on the need and function of the operation. So when I asked you the question of like, do we even know where the money goes? And it's things like a security detail. Is it every day? I don't really know. That's not spelled out. Um, most Portlanders agree with that. They they don't like the initial proposal. The initial proposal is required that the Portland Police Accountability Commission be funded with at least 5% of the annual police bureau budget. The current police budget is $256 million. That's a lot. 5% of that is a lot of money. Yeah. Um, most Portlanders don't think that that's how th- this commission should be funded um, or th- this accountability commission should be funded. And then... The next question, I, I mean, I thought was also, I mean, all of these are, they're all in line against, so far, the ones I'm reading are all in line against the Police Accountability Commission's proposal. Yeah, I mean, and question, people don't agree with it. No, um, no. And I mean, and again, the, the big the big issue here, and I mean, some of these percentages, I mean, are just polling anomalies from the standpoint that they're huge numbers. I mean, you know, the, as yeah. far as the, the question 20 in the poll, the, you know, discussing whether or not people should be doing ride alongs or other things. You know, we heard in the presentation in city council that 
um, that, you know, going on ride alongs might be concerning for people or create issues. I mean, look, I, it, it 100%, there are people. Some who, of the commissioners refused to do it. They said it right. would create trauma. And, and here's the thing, like the, there are people who have had negative interactions with law enforcement of in our course. community. And that, that is a very real issue. And there's a lot of trauma that can happen there. And we need to navigate that. But it also, the thing that's important is if you are going to be someone who's going to have the ability to hire and fire people, you, you, we've got to find people who can navigate that. That doesn't mean that you can't serve, but just like you can't be a police officer if you've engaged in certain conduct or you've had certain traumas or, you know, we have people in the military who have significant PTSD. It's not their fault. They wouldn't serve our country, but they might not be able to go and be a police officer as a result of some of those, those issues that come from past trauma. We, we do make decisions throughout our society about allowing certain people to engage in certain things based on their past history because it will it will limit their ability to be successful. Um, that to me is not that interesting, right? I mean, that, that, that is consistent with what we do everywhere. And so it's super important that the people who are going to be doing investigations on law enforcement can sit in front of them and ask them questions. Is it true that the one of the proposals that the police accountability commission came up with was that they be able to investigate officer related shootings that they be able to participate in those so i mean it, it's a little muddy i mean that that is the so the crux of what cases they're wanting to investigate are the higher level of cases you know deadly force investigations um, you know, initially there was the conversation about a cross investigation about them having there with the homicide detectives kind of, you know, actually engaging in the investigation. The problem is, is that these administrative investigations do not supersede the criminal investigation because when an officer engages in, in, in the use of deadly force, they are investigated as if they've committed a homicide. It's that level. Obviously it's very important when you use deadly force. Um, and so the, the district attorney's office actually kind of owns that scene and, and, you know, they're the primary on that. And so we've got to make sure that the administrative investigation doesn't interfere um, or, you know, kind of tamper with um, what is a very serious investigation. Um, as it is now, IPR, uh, the you know, the independent, independent police, police review, review folks, um, IA Internal Affairs, the city attorney's office, uh, the auditor's office, like all of these folks have people who come and observe at the crime scene. Um, but uh, they don't, you know, actively participate. Um, and I think that's kind of where we landed, and that's important. So so what ultimately went to the Department of Justice um, did not include participation in police shooting investigations? Yeah. I believe, um, and again, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe that the one piece, um, they were allowed to be in uh, interviews, um, but not like directly participating. Right, but not directly questioning, not showing up at crime scenes. Uh, they can show up. They can. Um, yeah, and, and that is, I mean, again, that is not inconsistent with what happens now. Um, okay, do not, they get to investigate um, at the crime, crime scenes? At the crime scenes now, they're not like the internal, so like if you have a, a, a serious investigation there's like yellow crime scene tape which is like the external perimeter and the red crime scene tape the only people who can go into that red crime scene tape are the investigators um, it's just it, again it's it's a very kind of sacred place you don't want to have uh, you that's know. the criminal side that you were talking about yeah. not the administrative yeah. side and that's why you were saying it's so important that we get those two right and we keep them distinct right, right. And so that should, maybe that needs to be spelled out more clearly. Um, but this entire thing is just troubling to me. And I, this is part of why I begged city council to send it back to the voters. And I think based on this poll, it seems to me the voters would like it sent back. 
Yeah, that part wasn't unclear. Um, we actually asked that question directly, um, and we asked it directly in two ways. Um, the, the the first was just simply, would you like to have another crack at this? Um, which uh, you know, the the fifty seven percent said go back to the voters with uh, proposed changes as their as their preference. And 23% says keep it as is. Um, that's a pretty resounding uh, response. Um, and then also, you know, we, we wanted to see, because you, you hear a lot about, you know, people threatening candidates. If you if you support this, then you're not, you, you're not going to win. And people having to make those kind of difficult decisions. Well, you know, 67% of Portlanders said they would either be more likely to vote for or it would not have an impact on their vote um, if, if they uh, voted to send this back to the voters. And again, a, a referendum from council, the reason I think that's important is that was how, what got us here in the first place. Um, you know, the, this, this accountability commission concept came as a referendum from city council. Um, and when we recognize that there's issues, uh, it returning to ensure that the, the will of the voters is fully heard is important, especially in a world where what was referred to the voters was incomplete. Um, and it was notedly incomplete. The auditor's office pointed out there was a lot of concerns about it when it began. Now that we've seen it bear out, it seems like there's political safety for one, but for two, there's moral clarity in ensuring that the, that the voters are getting what they actually are asking for. Yes, that they're ask, they, they are literally asking city council to send it back. One of the things that I, one of the questions I got when I said that you were coming on was about this poll specifically and about they were concerned that landlines were used because a lot of people don't use landlines specifically anymore. And my thought was just sort of the people who are using landlines are actually most likely to vote. I mean, the people who vote the most are older people who have landlines. But also, I thought it was interesting, you pointed out that um, the response categories, like they had 15% of 18 to 29-year-olds responding Mm -hmm. to this. Um, 33% were 30 to 44, 31% were 45 to 64, and 65 and over, some of the oldest people who you'd think would be a lot of the ones voting, that was just 21%. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought it I thought it reflected different age groups relatively well, and it certainly reflect seemed to reflect voting patterns well, like, like boomers were, were seemed well represented, for instance, and they seemed to vote quite a bit. Um, did, were you pleased with the way that they did that? Yeah, Nate, I, I did not talk to DHM at all about their methodology. I think that's so um, important that you didn't their, do that. Their, their methodology is their methodology, yes. and I'm not a pollster. Um, right. Right, but they're... Um, and you don't want to interfere with that, no. because then this poll is garbage. Right, no, so I, I the, 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 you know, the, the outcome as far as who they spoke to, the demographics, um, I'm assuming that that is uh, that, that that they were trying to get a clean representation of Portland um, from an age standpoint. Again, landlines versus cell phones. Like I, I mean, I agree that there are more people on cell phones, um, but I mean, I also know that my phone, my cell phone, automatically blocks junk phone calls because yes. I get so many of them. So, um, if you're trying to get a, a sample of people. I, I'm sure their methodology is is commensurate with what they do with all their other polls. Um, and you know, the, the most important thing to me was the demographics appeared to very, very, very clearly represent Portland. Um, I agree, especially like party registration. Only eight percent were Republican. Mm-hmm. To me, that's like a mic drop. I mean, to, if I'm sitting on city council, I'm referring this thing back 
It's it's very clear to me. Non-affiliated voters, 27%. That makes sense to me. In Oregon, if you mm-hmm. get a driver's license, you're automatically registered to vote. You're registered as unaffiliated. Most people don't change that. Mm-hmm. That's why we have so many unaffiliated voters. And then mo- most were Democrats, as they are in Portland, 55%. So 55% of people who responded to this poll are identify as Democrats. Yeah. Only 8% identified as Republican, very, very small percentage. So it's not like the, they just found people who they knew would be supportive of law enforcement, and that's part of why I think this poll is so impressive. So what is the next step? My understanding is city council's recommendations have gone to the Department of Justice. I think, I mean, this is just my opinion. I'm just spitballing here, but I think it's like <laughs> probably a 99% chance that the Department of Justice is going to approve it, although they haven't yet, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so, And then once the Department of Justice approves that, they give it back to city council? Yep, and and I imagine at that point city council will begin the process of, of setting the board. Um, you know, and, and the thing that's interesting from my perspective is, is you can do that. You can begin to set this board um, and still go and ask the voters about what that board's going to do um, and what authority they have. Um, and to me... I think voters have spoken very clearly, and I think they'll continue to speak very clearly that they want good civilian oversight. And it's interesting, too. You know, I've had a couple people say to me that they thought that the poll was biased, but the poll itself does not say that voters want to repeal the PAC. And you're not hearing me say that I want to repeal no, the PAC. No, because, I'm not hearing that. Because the bottom line is, is that... Y- you said we do... There there are things in this that, that you like. Yeah. You like the efficiency, for instance. Yeah, and so... And so, the consolidation. Yeah, so ultimately, I, I think we got a pretty clean answer as to what, what Portlanders want. Um, and it is really important that, again, that we start the process of, of standing up the board, because I think the board clearly needs to and is going to exist. But voters you know, before the thing is actually enacted, can can fix the handful of issues, again, I've, I've mentioned several of them, um, to ensure that once it actually is seated, that these folks are set up for success. Well, it's all, they're all spelled out in the poll. All they have to do is, is use the poll. So, are, so could city council go ahead and seat the people on the police? It's, it would be called the Police Accountability Board. Is that what it's called? Uh, there's an acronym for it that was in the council. I okay, so what whatever it, it is, yeah. this, this Police Accountability Group, they can go ahead and appoint people to it. And what, each counselor gets a certain amount of people they get to appoint? Yeah, I can't. Well, it's, it's a, there's a, a, a kind of a, a recommendation committee, um, a handful of people. Um, and then from Do you know the, who's on that committee? Um, there's someone from the PPA, the PPCOA, uh, like a third of it is the representative groups. And What's then, PPCOA? Uh, the Portland Police Command of Officers. There's like 30 of them. Um, it's, a, it's just That's a, a separate union a separate for the union. command yep. officers. Um, and then, uh, then the city selects uh, a, a, the other two-thirds of the board is uh, appointed by commissioners and um, community members and things like that. Um, and so the overwhelming majority is is community members. Okay, and so they can go ahead and start appointing people to this board and figuring out how they're supposed to follow these recommendations that have been sent back to them by mm-hmm. the Department of Justice. But you're saying also in the meantime they can create, what, a ballot measure that they can send to the voters to vote on? Yep. Um, it would I mean, To narrow down what this is really going to look like? So really, I mean, again, to me the biggest thing – kind of the political benefit is that the, the, the main issues 
don't interfere with the uh, creation of the board, right? The, the, the main issues, the who gets to impose discipline issue as far as the city ensuring that it doesn't create legal chaos for itself. Um, you know, the budget piece of it, uh, you, the budget could be set um, in the next budget year, which is coming in, in July. Um, you, you could set that budget um, and once the voters say what they want to do, um, ensure that the budget's commensurate with what the city thinks it should cost. Um, and um, the only piece of it that uh, that I think is challenging is is the the makeup of the board, the the restriction. I agree. Um, and I again, I, I don't think that it's not going to look legitimate no. if it's got nothing but a ball, you know, anti police activists on it. Yeah, and you know, and my hope is that you know, th- this council, um, from my perspective in my meetings with them, has been has been very. Uh, responsive in wanting to ensure that that systems are fair. And so I'm hoping um, that we won't see that happen. Um, I, I don't think restricting a, a group based on who your family member pa- passes constitutional muster. Um, that's the one piece that I think, you know, would be difficult um, should the board be set up prior to navigating these issues. But at the end of the day, Again, I, it's funny, I, I don't care if there are family members of police officers on this board. I just think it's unconstitutional to restrict them from doing so. What about the discipline issue? Can they, I mean, they can refer all these questions mm-hmm. to a ballot measure, can they not? I mean, they, they, can, they can also narrow down that discipline issue, and they can ask if, if bargaining should actually be interfered with. It doesn't matter if the law's been changed to allow it. It doesn't right. mean that we need to do it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and again, the biggest the biggest frustration for me is, in you know, I mean, from the most cynical perspective, a lot of these policy realities are set up to to create more cases that have to be arbitrated because a process wasn't followed. And again, arbitration cases create dissonance. They create chaos. They create frustration in our community. Our 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 job is to just ensure that the rules are followed. But the more you have a system that is set up in a cynical way, the more arbitrations you're going to have. And again, the more decisions that are made extrajudiciously, the more arbitration awards you're going to see overturning the, the, the decision that's made. And again, it will just give ammo to this idea that law enforcement doesn't want to be policed itself. And this just couldn't be further from the truth. The real, the real concern is just simply ensuring that the rules are followed. Like, doesn't it make your, let's just lay our cards on the table. Doesn't it make your job easier if there's police accountability? Yeah, it, not only yes, but the, <laughs> with the, the community, I mean, with, 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 with your union yeah. generally, with, with the job that you have of, of representing your officers. Yes. And what's so frustrating is there are just, there, there are people who have been very successful in convincing people that that doesn't exist already. Um, and it's just simply not true. Uh, Portland police officers are held to a standard that exceeds any standard that exists in this country. We consider activities force that no other police agency in this country considers force. Like, can you be specific? So if you touch somebody and they pull away from that touch, a sergeant has to come out and not, nothing else happens. They just pull away from you. You know, you're holding, you handcuff someone and they kind of wiggle their arms a little bit. A sergeant has to come out and investigate that to ensure that your, your overcoming of the wiggling is not 
a problem. Every single thing that a Portland police officer does is viewed under a microscope. And, and finally, we're going to have body cameras, but it's going to add even more investigations. At the end of the day, this idea that Portland police officers have not been held accountable is just simply not true. And that is, I mean, again, I'm all for, for, for police accountability. I'm all for ensuring that our police officers are held to the highest standard. We frankly have some of the best cops in the country. Um, and your training, my understanding is that your training is outstanding. And it, it, the amount of hours we spend, the amount of money that's spent, if you look around the country, training itself, pay and training are the two things that create a bunch of issues. Because, again, you got to pay people enough to, to not want to do other jobs. And so the paying police officers commensurate with the sacrifice you're asking to make gets you better applicants. And then training people, you know, many of the issues we've seen around the country the, the, the concerns that come out are training that we've been doing since the 80s, um, you know, and so it's like, yeah. Like what? Like what are people exploring um, that you all have been doing? You know, I mean, chokeholds were banned in the late 80s here in, in Portland. You know, you look at like, it was funny when the, the eight can't wait people came and talked talk to city council. Every single one of their policy proclivities had been done in Portland 20 <laughs> years ago, except for a force continuum. And force continuums are unconstitutional and they create more force. And so it's like, the again, the standard that exists here, and again, it's probably our fault. We, maybe we need to do a better job of promoting or, or, or showing the work that we've done. Um, but Portland has been striving towards best practice for a long time. And again, that doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. But the real thing that's frustrating for me within the law enforcement kind of discussion is that systems of accountability aren't set up for perfection. They're not set up to ensure that nothing bad ever happens. They're set up to ensure that when something bad happens, you catch it and you navigate it and you transparently walk through what happened. And you can say to the public, look, this is what happened. This is the investigation. This is what we're going to do. Those are the things that matter. But, but people who exist in kind of the abolish the police world say, well, see, look, bad things are still happening, which means we don't have a system of accountability. Right. That's right. That would be like saying we don't have a justice system because people are still committing crimes. People are people. People are, 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 are able to make mistakes and often do. Um, and again, the decisions we're asking officers to make are hyper-challenging in really chaotic circumstances. And frankly, in Portland, we've asked police officers to address all of society's ills in the absence of partnership. That's exactly right. And in many, many cases, we're like, well, police officers, you know, let's just get, I mean, you can look at Measure 110. Police officers should not interact with people who are suffering from addiction. Also, police officers are going to be the people who give people tickets for addiction. So, we're, again, there's this always this weird negative incentive structure that's set up to both destroy relationship that law enforcement has with the community, which makes their job impossible, but then also asking them to police the same community with which we have no relationship. There's the same argument within school police. Same, you know, you, 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 we want to have our kids not interact with law enforcement but then we're also going to expect when they do interact with law enforcement that that's going to go well. And we still don't have school resource officers back. No, no. and I mean I know we're going to talk it's about it's a huge the, tragedy. Yeah, you know, I know we're going to talk about Portugal in a minute, but the in Portugal their their resolution to responding to having a dictator and no relationship with law enforcement and the government was to create 280 school police officers. We've got to have relationship, right? We've got to have people who, who are young and learning about how the government functions, having non-crisis-related interactions with law enforcement is so critical. The same thing with our gun violence team. 
you know, when you have a community that is overrepresented, right? They've been eliminated, right? Well, they're back via the fit, co- or the via fit, the focus intervention team, and they're doing that, incredible work. That's but, a different. Yep. It, it, don't they have different goals, and it's it's a different structure. Um, it's a different structure. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, the work they're doing is similar, but the, all the people who were doing the work before, who had these just deep and abiding relationships, yeah, those are gone. It's gone, and and, and the knowledge, the institutional yeah. knowledge, is gone. Um, Not that the FICOG isn't doing a good job. My understanding is they're doing a great job. But but that eliminate when you're eliminating programs that have been working because you've someone has decided that they're racist without any sort of data specific data or evidence in regard to Portland, it, it's really frustrating. And I, I don't know how you bring that stuff back. I mean, it, to the extent you do, you start from the ground up all over again. Do you not? Because you've got these officers that have to recreate relationships with the kids and the principals and the teachers and the... Well, a lot of it, in my opinion, comes down to societal accord. I mean, you look at, at the schools, you know, I, I mean, the schools, many of the people who work within the schools are begging for their school resource officers to come back. But it's so important that if they do come back, that the community knows what to expect. Because again, the community was told in 2020 that having police officers in or near schools was violence. It was dangerous. It was going to create problems for kids. By the schools themselves yeah, as by well, the, by not the just boards. by the politicians. Right. Um, and so um, it was, I mean, it was mostly, it was mostly at the administrative level, the, the teachers, the principals, right. I right. mean, you know, 96% of our calls for service when we had our, I was the sergeant of it. 96% of our calls were teachers were people calling for help. So those folks, I mean, the people who are in the schools just want help and they want support. Um, and you were, you all had won an award for that. I know we talked about this on the last episode, but I think it's important to remind people you all had won an award for those school resource officers. Yeah. In 2019, the youth services division in Portland was given the national best, like the best school resource officer team in the country. Right. Right before it was eliminated. Mm-hmm. And and the other thing that I thought was interesting is you that you all were able to funnel kids away from the criminal justice system in a way you you're not able to if you're not in the school. Yeah, and the greatest irony is that I mean, again, looking at Measure One Ten, the model that existed is the same model that should exist with people who are suffering from addiction. Diverting people from the criminal justice system requires participation of the criminal justice system. You can't divert people. when the inputs all exist within that system, right? So when you have people who are calling for service, they're calling and saying a crime has been committed, the only way to divert that thing from the the justice system outside of having a case and having a judge later doing it is having the police officers at that point of origin being equipped and trained and able and having the time to work through restorative process, to work through other options. And because, again, once the, the, the big piece of the juvenile justice system that people don't understand is in the adult justice system, the only way a case moves forward is if you have a victim waiting there saying, I would like to press charges, please. In the juvenile justice system, if a police report is written about a, about a, a child, about someone that is a juvenile, and a, a crime is articulated in the police report, it's adjudicated. It gets sent through the court system. And so it... It, it again, it, it is it is that way because historically the desire is to ensure that kids have a chance to kind of work through things. They're called adjudications and not prosecutions. But again, when a kid goes through that system, statistically it is challenging for them. So 
finding ways to completely abate that when necessary or when appropriate, finding ways to work through, you know, restorative justice or other programs, finding ways to sit down with kids and family members or whoever else to try to help restore that kiddo so that they're not getting, you know, more cases down the road is important. And it it has been shown and proven to be successful. But the only way to do that is having police officers there at that point of origin of the case, not later. Um, Thank you for that clarification. I just, I I think it's so important and there's not enough education around it. So I appreciate it. Now you, we talked about 110 and you went on this trip to Portugal Mm -hmm. that the drug policy association came up with and they, their idea was to fund it for a lot of people. And some of our legislators, legislators took that funding. You did not is my understanding. Um, And so tell me about how that went and what you learned. Um, Well, and first, just a point of clarity. The only reason I mean, I, you know, I wanted to make sure that the conversation around funding didn't pollute the conversation. And, you know, it was yeah, different. That's I mean, very it, was, important. it was a very expensive trip. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, my board felt that it was important. And so that's what we did. But um, I don't want to criticize the folks who, who did take the money because, you know, our, our, our legislative folks down in Salem get paid about 25 grand a year. So it's, it's, it's an expensive trip. And I, I, but I guess my question is like for them, why go? I mean, um, we already know Portugal is not a great model. Like, they don't have fentanyl. Right. Um, they don't well, have guns. Yeah. I, I think the biggest thing, honestly, like, people kept bringing up Portugal as a flagship. Well, as, that's true. as a model. And honestly, like, I mean, I was doing an, a, an interview uh, on a national show, and there was a, a doctorate-level uh, guy from, I think it was Princeton or one of the East Coast, uh, Columbia, it was Columbia. And he was just going off about the Portugal model and how it's so functional and everything else. And honestly, like from my perspective, let's answer the question. Let's go. Let's see. And, you know, if you don't go, if you just ask people questions on the phone, you're not going to be able to know what questions to ask. And frankly, like for me, so the best example I can give why I thought it was important that I was there physically, aside from the relationships that were developed, um, you know, the the safe use sites that they have in, in Portugal, they have two of them, one's in Porto and one is in uh, Lisbon. Um, you know, police officers see things through a different lens. Um, you know, I know what drug dealing looks like. I'm, (laughs) I've navigated that world for a while and, 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 you know, being able to be there and feel what it feels like to stand in that neighborhood and seeing just the, the, the mass proliferation of open air drug dealing, um, and the predatory nature of those drug dealers understanding, um, that they had just easy clients, um, and what that looked like, um, was really important for me and, you know, standing there with, with legislators, again, navigating our different perspectives together, um, you know, them saying, well, it seems like this gets some drug dealer or drug users off the streets. And then I walked outside and it was, you know, tell me what you see. Let me tell you what I see. I mean, and, and again, we all come at this from a different perspective. So I thought those conversations were really healthy and they can only happen in person because again, you, you have to kind of see and feel and breathe what that event feels like. And even, um, you know, in Lisbon, you know, their neighborhood where their safe use site is, is in a historically very complicated neighborhood that has had a lot of drug use, just kind of time in memoriam. Working through what that feels like to, to I mean, because again, I, I, they're, they're dealing with a very complex issue different than we are, but I, I just think it's so important to be able to see those things in person um, and also have access to all of the people having this conversation in the state all at once. The amount of hours I spent speaking to people who it would take me six months to actually have those meetings once I thought was invaluable. 
what, thank you for clarifying that. And I'm, in that case, I'm really glad you went. And it sounds like it was a, it was actually an important trip. Did it convince you that Measure One Ten is something that's good for Oregon? No, um, it actually convinced me of what I kind of believed before was that. So Portugal A was directly responding to a health issue. They had 1% of their population using heroin. They had a mass proliferation of spread of, of disease through, uh, through needles. Um, and they passed, I think they said it was some, somewhere in the range of like 80 bills that and spent two years ramping up their process, whereas we passed one. Um, it was uh, legislation um, through initiative, which is always a bit of a challenge. Um, and our, our problem was that was kind of cited at the origin was far more complicated. Um, now you hear people talk quite a bit about the health response, but the measure 110 was actually really focused on disproportionate impacts of law enforcement and the judicial system on people suffering from addiction. That was really the main focus initially. Um, and so, uh, and in Portugal, that, that just simply wasn't a part of the conversation at all. Um, and so that showed to me that the difference for one and for two, the, the balance that societal accord has on, on navigating complicated issues. Um, in, you know, in Portugal, there, it's, it's a whole of government approach. Um, everyone's working together. Whether or not they want to, I don't know, but they're, they're definitely working together. Um, and you didn't have this, this just kind of strange separation through legislation that exists of we want to separate people from some of the different services that we're paying taxes for. Um, the opposite is true, in my opinion, and I'm convinced of that after spending time in Portugal. If the government is going to spend a hundred, well, if the government's going to spend, say, maybe about a billion dollars in the state on law enforcement, and they're also going to spend billions of dollars on services. In Portugal, all their money is in the government, and you have one point of contact. It's called SICAD. They they are the parent organization that navigates the addiction issue in Portugal. Here, we have law enforcement, which is asked to do a lot of different things, and then we have a bunch of nonprofits and CBOs, uh, community-based organizations, um, and other things you know that all kind of accept tax dollars, but some want to work together, some don't, and it just creates, you know, a ton of money being spent multiple times on the same problem. Um, and so, you know, and I, I mean, I, I cannot begin to tell you how wonderful the humans that I spent time with there were. I mean, they're all, they're deeply focused on trying to solve the problem, but I, I, I hope because what I felt leaving was that everyone understood that we've got to work together to solve those problems. When you're talking about the humans that you spent time with, are you talking about the people in Portugal or the people you went, the leaders uh, you went on the trip with? The leaders, I, I mean, the people in Portugal were great, but I mean, I mean, just the, the, you know, the elected leaders, uh, for one, um, you know, it's doing my job. You don't get to speak to people a lot, you know, you do sometimes, but it was very clear to me, that, you know, left, right, and center, everyone, everyone that was in an elected position there is focused on, they want to solve the problem. You know, how they view the problem is different, but that's not the point. But also the folks who were there that are working in the addiction space, almost two of one have themselves had lived experience with addiction. And a lot of them have had negative interactions with law enforcement. Um, but they were very gracious in in kind of unpacking that. And frankly, it gave me hope that we can do that well. Because, again, I, I was invited to this trip because I had worked with some of the folks that were navigating that space. Uh, Fernando Pena is one of them. And I'll just say his name because he's, he's great. Um, but he had the courage to say, listen, if we're going to solve this problem, we've got to bring police to the table and understand what services they can provide. Um, and also, uh, many of these folks are recognizing um, openly that the we all have all these touch points, 
the only way to actually move forward is to manifest every touch point every single person who's receiving tax dollars has into actually serve into actual services is how we can save tax dollars right because again we're spending seven dollars to save one basically because we keep giving money to groups that don't want to work together um, but also we understood together that if we're going to look at Portugal and say well, this is what works what works well there is they don't have this weird split um and so you mean they don't have a hundred different nonprofits right. that they're giving public money to which essentially exist as public entities with no accountability yeah. and no metrics and no no availability for FOIA requests because right. they're nonprofits yep so what you're saying is they have streamlined it so that these are all government entities. These are government worker, workers yeah, dealing and, and with and this. It's, much e- it's a small country and everything's federalized, right? Like it's the whole thing is federalized. So you know, even their police are, fe- are federal. So that, I mean, we can't mirror that, but we can mirror the spirit of it by recognizing that if you're going to spend money, right? You're the city, the county, the state. If you're going to spend money, sit down with everyone who has a nexus in those dollars and ensure that you're not spending it three or four times. You know, if police have a real-time interaction, if, if it is true that addiction, and I, I believe it is true, that addiction is a health issue, if you're in, if the police are interacting with somebody who's suffering from addiction, if a firefighter, if PSR, if anyone is interacting, interacting with someone who's not engaging in criminal conduct, we need real-time access to those services, and those services need to work well with law enforcement to ensure that as quickly as possible we can get those folks into the treatment they're providing not saying we don't want to work with law enforcement what would your solution be would it be similar to um i the city has talked about creating a database yeah so i mean we know that there is a uh, you know, there's a, a number of people who need services and these people are interacting with all these different services we're providing in real time. So to me, if the government were wanting to kind of create an umbrella that functioned and also ensure that tax dollars are being spent well, we would create an app or a website or whatever else we want to call it that every organization that accepts tax dollars, police, fire, everybody, CBOs, all of them, they daily update the resources they can provide to those first responders. If you want the tax dollars, you got to participate in a system that functions. Um, and if you don't, then then you can do whatever you want. You can provide whatever services you want. You just can't have tax dollars because tax dollars are all, we're going to make sure they're all working together. And every single day, police... So it's and, a condition of public money. Yes, yes. Because again, if we want our government to function well together, it needs to function well together. Um, and then... Uh, and. Firefighters, again, firefighters, police officers, PSR, if you're out in the street and you come across someone, you get a call about someone, instead of the third time or the fourth time you're getting a call, the first time you can say, okay, what kind of services do you need? Is it shelter? Is it mental health care? Is it, um, is it an addiction treatment type situation? And in real time, we need folks available. These service providers need to have 24-hour availability. Um, we talk about that a lot with PSR, but with nobody else, we need to have real-time availability and a real-time bed count. And so I can say, hey, look, here's five places you can go right now. I'm probably not going to be the one that takes you there. You can call a cab. We can have, again, have some some treatment folks. PSR, again, I, I think they should be able to transport. Um, but do that and then have the last option be police intervention. 
Um, if someone refuses to go, they're unable to care for themselves. We do a hold, whatever else we now. It's almost like drug court then, right? You have a choice. Right. Um, but again, if, if we're able to get, cause one thing we know about, and I learned, I, at least from what I've talked, talking to my, my friends I went to Portugal with, when people are ready and willing and asking for help, you have a window of opportunity to get them that help or otherwise that merry-go-round is going to continue to turn and they may not be ready for services again for a month or a year or however. Forever. Right. Yeah. And so if we have those real opportunities to help people, it, we have, again, a moral imperative to provide that help in real time. Um, but if we had access to that information, A, we would be able to provide those services and B, we would be able to answer the Martin V. Boise question, which is, what services do you have available in real time? If we don't know, we don't know what kind of intervention we can provide. Um, and that's that Ninth Circuit ruling that the city is very concerned about, that the city interprets it to mean that they need enough beds to give to everybody laying on the street in order to enforce sit lie laws or in order to, frankly, comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Right. Uh, which puts it's in a real pickle. Did you ha, did you gain any understanding about whether police? I mean, it sounds to me like you're saying police are involved as a system partner in Portugal. Yes, that's a huge difference from what we have yes. going on right now. Yeah, and I mean, it was so. I mean, again, I uh, what was so so interesting to me talking to the police in Portugal. Again, you go back to the you know the mid seventies. They had a dictator. It was overthrown. They kind of create this new system of government, and they had legitimate discord around like how do we figure out how to be a new country, right? A new kind of freer, more kind of prosperous country. We want to make sure that people have access to the government. It, it was a, a a moment of joy for me um, when they said that their way of navigating that was through community policing. In 1985, they're like, we need, you know, our, our police are our front line for interacting with the public. We're going to create a thousand police officers who are going to be directly focused on community policing. We're going to put 280 police officers in schools. Um, you know, they have, again, I was, it was something of an irony to me, 2.4 per thousand police officers in Portugal, which just happens to be exactly the number the FBI suggests. Um, wow. but I mean, it was, I mean, the, the math again, I was That's far more than us. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's more than double. Um, but their law enforcement serves as a vector for treatment, a vector for enforcement, a vector for care. Um, but they can do that because they have full buy-in and participation with all the other pieces that the government's paying for. Now, again... And, and society. Yeah. And the other thing that was interesting is they have real societal accord around what kinds of things they want to tolerate. Um, you know, the the concept of, of cleaning up camps and cleaning up kind of you know, kind of livability type issues. Do they have camps there? No, because the government just comes and takes stuff. I mean, you, you, if you leave stuff, I mean, there was, there was a handful of like at night people would camp, um, you know, and if you go to the kind of the outskirts of the city, you'd see a few more things. Um, but like this, the, the degree was just so different. Um, but again, the biggest thing is that when you talk to people who live there, like that there is societal accord around kind of the rules of society. Um, and interestingly talking to the police, some of that's starting to wane and they're starting to see some more issues. Uh, one, one uh, police commander we talked to said that, you know, in 1985-ish, or I'm sorry, when 1975-ish, when, when there was a, a switch into this new form of government, people felt a very strong sense of duty to country, duty to each other, um, and that now they're starting to see people talk more about individual rights 
And as a result, it's leading to a little bit more societal discord around what they can do and what the government can That's do. That's Portland. Yeah, it sounds pretty familiar. Yeah. Um, and That's so, the ACLU. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, again, the challenge becomes we don't want to violate people's constitutional rights, but, like, everyone has constitutional rights. And that societal accord ensuring that everyone has, you know, their rights being heard and then we arbitrate the navigation of that is important. Right. So there's this balance there you're saying in terms of rights and interests as opposed to a lot of what's going on here where it's um, a libertarian sort of live and let live for everybody, except it's not really libertarian because it interferes with the rights of others. It interferes with disabled people to get down the sidewalk, with kids to not know what fentanyl smoke smells like. Right. With Yeah. So, and so their system isn't perfect is what I'm hearing. Like it's a step up from what we have, but... It's not perfect. There's still drug dealing everywhere. But the big issue that they're also facing is that the the parliament passed a law um, that changed the amount of user amount of uh, people can possess to be, you know, pushed into the the, uh, dissuasion commission from one day amount to 10 days. And that has been a significant concern for law enforcement because trying to navigate policing that is really difficult. yeah, that's a, that makes their jobs trickier. And and the other thing that they have that we don't have is intervention. Their intervention is primary there, right. is it not? Yeah, and I mean, you know, the whole dissuasion commission piece, so basically yeah. they meet with people, but they also... It, it's, it, it's an intervention, right? It is, and it's also kind of... I mean, it would be difficult constitutionally here because it's extrajudicial. I mean, they, they've basically given the authority of this commission to tell I people. I got it. You know, so it, it is a little it's bit... It's like drug court. Yeah, without the court. So <laughs> yeah. Right. So for yeah. us, what we really need is the kind of thing that, that um, you know, pre-110 that that Kevin Barton was doing in, let's say, in Washington County where, where you know, somebody um, overdoses, there's naloxone involved, they've got a bunch of pills, and then you say, okay, you can... Um, you know, we'd like to take you to the hospital, but then after that, you can go to drug court or you can go to jail, kind right. of a thing. And so that would be sort of our dissuasion. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it, it, you know, talking to a lot of the addiction folks, like it, it is difficult figuring out, um, in my opinion, the, the navigation between forced treatment versus you know uh, treatment that is 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 asked for. I mean, we have waiting lists for people who are asking for treatment. So to me, right. the, the, the biggest solution, I mean, the number one thing, we, we should have zero. That's the low-hanging fruit. Right, like we've got to get rid of, I mean, there should be no way. If you're asking for treatment, we should it, it should be there. Um, because again, when, when you're at that point of asking, if you're not getting it, the odds of you slipping back into that kind of dark place are pretty high. And so... And I think we agree. I think I, I at least, I, I, I'm assuming you do, agree with the Drug Policy Alliance slash harm reduction folks that that should be available and ready to go at all yes. times for those people. Well, and again, in the absence of participation, um, you know, I mean, I was doing one interview a while ago and, and there was a group in Estacada, um, Adult Teen Challenge, that said that they had five beds available that day. And to me, if you're within a stone's throw of Portland and you have available beds, we're doing something wrong. I mean, they there shouldn't be any. Why other. aren't we going? Why aren't we sending people there? TriMet runs <laughs> out to Estacada, right? Yeah. I mean, like it just—I mean, it just—it really is like. Can't when, Metro work with themselves to get that done? I mean, I, can't Metro do something actually functional and helpful for us? Yeah, I mean, when I when I just when I hear that there are open beds for treatment, um, it makes my blood boil a bit. Well, because you're dealing with this every day, and yeah. walking, we're s- sitting downtown, and we've we've and we walk past people just to get into this building today who may or may not be interested in treatment and 
the likelihood is they won't get it if they want it today. And that's why it's one of the reasons that it's frustrating. You talked about conversations that you had with people. Are you, I don't, you know, obviously I don't want you to reveal confidences or specifics, but do you feel like you were able to connect with people who, like you said, you you felt, felt like they were generous in talking to you and in talking to you about their issues with police. Do you feel like you were able to connect with them on a level where you everybody walked away from that conversation feeling, if not good, at least comfortable? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the, the main guy we talked to uh, said several times, we're not a model. Do not model yourself after us. We're all rats running a different race. The guy in Portugal said mm-hmm. that? And, wow. And and again, and, and the, re- the biggest reason he says that is a lot of other European countries kind of look and, and he's like, look, we, we were dealing with a very specific issue. And he also, you know, he did a good job of, of pointing out that like, you know, Decrim focused on, a, on a, a whole scale of things. But he's like, you know, each one of these issues, if you're, if you're wanting to deal with street use, you know, if you're wanting to deal with you know, camping, if you're wanting to deal with houselessness, like all these things are different issues. You're not going to solve all of them with one move. You've got to, you've got to navigate and decide what your societal agreement is. Um, and again, I mean, he openly, and many people did the absence of fentanyl and the presence of, (laughs) of, of, I mean, the, the amount of guns we have here, just changes. I mean, it just changes the, like, so like for instance, the safe use sites, like I, I just, I, we would have, Oh, it, it would be awful here. It'd be in my shootouts, um, and and just it. it I, I, in the absence of those kinds of things, I think we have a, a, a different navigate. Fentanyl is an absolute force multiplier that we haven't seen. Anything else you want to talk about before we sign off? No. Thank you. You're welcome for coming on. Yeah. I really appreciate it, and for sharing your perspective. Um, so for anybody who is interested in this police accountability commission, if you have any questions about it at all, if this raises concerns for you, please email city council and let them know how you feel about it. Either way, um, take a look at the polling it's been reported on. Do you know if any, Aaron, if any of the news organizations actually appended the actual poll to their article? I want to say uh, Noah Crombie did an article on it. I think she did. She did a good one. Um, yep. So maybe refer to the Noah Crombie's article in the Oregon. You're not a link to that in the show notes. And then I would just go through that and think about the things that you might want to see and let city council know what you want to see to the, and, and if you want it referred back and what kind of kinds of questions should be asked. Thanks again, Aaron. You're welcome.